This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. On the show today, we welcome Mark Woodry from the Mississippi State University Coastal Research and Extension Center. More than 325 bird species make the round trip each year along the Mississippi Flyway. Mark's here to discuss some of these migrating birds that call Mississippi home this time of year and what to look for on your next bird sighting journey. Dr. Major's here, as always, ready for your pet questions. Libby joins us from her trip out west, and she's always ready to discuss your recent brushes with nature. So join our conversation with your phone call this morning. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 Or you can email the show, send it to animals at mpbonline.org. We we'll always like to remind you that if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, it repeats Saturday mornings at 6. And to those listening on Saturday morning, we appreciate you starting your weekend with MPB Think Radio. So good morning, uh, Libby. A belated birthday greetings to you. Thank you. So you're still out west. Uh, what uh, interesting things are you seeing? Oh, gosh. This week we found several banana slugs and uh in in a probably pretty much the same habitat where we were finding the um, migrating salamanders, and I found that a, a four year old is also very good at finding banana slugs. So we've <laughs> gotten into our slugs this week. They're really fun. Uh, you know, we kind of think of in Mississippi more of slugs and snails as being pests. Uh, out here in the Pacific Northwest, where it's very damp and rainy. There are lots of species, and uh, really, people like their slugs out here, particularly the banana slugs, and uh, they're not uh, terribly pesty. They they also have a problem with exotic slugs here and snails, and those are pests to plants, but the banana slugs tend to only eat dead plants and to eat mushrooms and fungus, so they're... Um, well, mushrooms are fungus, but eat fungus, including mushrooms. So uh, they're uh, pretty interesting. They live a long time. About um, They can live up to seven years. But, of course, the really cool thing about them is that they're big and they have a lot of yellow on them. Some of them are, every now and then you'll find one that's just almost completely yellow, which, of course, it's easy to see why they're called banana slugs. But we've had a lot of fun with that. Uh, the ones we found were probably about seven inches long. Wow. <laughs> they, they get up to about 10 inches long. They're not the large. There's one European slug that's bigger that I read about, but uh, these are the biggest ones that we're going to find in North America. And um, uh, through most of California, anywhere that's moist in California, and um, Oregon, Washington State, Alaska, Canada, um, Idaho's got some. So really a, a fun, interesting animal to find. Of course, they're slow-moving, so they're not going to run away from you. You need to be careful and not harm them. Do they leave that little slime trail like the slugs here do? They do, and their slime trail is, is not particularly little because they're pretty big. <laughs> 
So um, they're, they're capable of producing a lot of slime. And that slime, of course, protects them from drying out. That's their big deal is they got to stay moist. But they also lay down a, um, a, a pheromone scent in the, in the slime that helps them find mates. And all these slugs, all the banana slugs are male and female. So they're all hermaphrodites, which, of course, helps when you're looking for a mate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it does seem like something that a, a five-year-old would enjoy uh, finding when they're out and about uh, with the, the size of the slug and the slime and all that. That seems like that's right up his alley. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, so in pet news, uh, to help combat kitty boredom, there's a new tiny robot that will keep your cat entertained. The Ebu Ebo by Anabot uh, interacts with cats via autonomous movements like rolling and dancing, or cat owners can control the robot through an app. The Ebo, Ebo, I guess, EBO, also comes with a 1080 HD cam that streams sound and video so you can stay connected to your feline no matter where you are. I looked these up. The, the base model, as it were, starts at about $265 and goes on up from there. Uh, so I think I would take a pass on that. And uh, Dr. Major, in terms of keeping track of your cat while you're at work, my, my guess is that my cat is asleep most of the day. You're probably right. Uh, they, they like to sleep during the day, and then they want you uh, at night uh, when you come home or during the night. They like to either lay down with you and sleep, but most of the time they need some attention. Uh, that's pretty pricey uh, pet toy there. But I suppose some people will will buy it. Uh, I think a lot of the cats like a box, like you've already alluded to, a box with a hole in it. Uh, certainly, they they are entertained, and I, some of the cats do watch TV as well. And there's a couple of channels that uh, would have some interesting things for cats. They don't need a soap opera, maybe a cat soap opera, but uh, they they do watch. I know my little dog does too. She. She'll get into the bed if she's on the bed and watch TV. You tell that she's watching whatever she's seeing. I'm not sure. But, uh, yeah, it's, that's interesting. They have all kind of things now for cats. And cats online are probably the most popular animal, uh, as you may know, uh, if you go online and see all the different things that people are putting online about their cat. There's even a... a a jewelry thing for the cat's tail now. The tail. It's, 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 a, it's a bling thing, and uh, you could look that up and see what that looks like. But uh, anyway, there's inventive people out there, okay? <laughs> uh, and if anybody wants to check this out, it's Ebo. E-B-O is the name of the robot, and the company that makes it is Anabot, Anabot, uh, E-N-A-B-O-T. Uh, my thought, though, too, would be, you know, my cat doesn't like uh, vacuum cleaners and things, so I hope uh, that whatever powers this, whatever little motor or whatever uh, they've got, that it, it's pretty quiet, because I think otherwise it, it might spook a cat. But uh, You know, there's some, some less expensive things. There, there are balls that uh, the cat, I notice uh, my younger cat will play with the mouse, and he'll act like he's playing hockey or whatever. He'll bat it around the house, get it under a couch or something like that, go in after it and come back and, and play with it some more. There are also some little balls that um, have, uh, when they're activated or, or moved, they will actually, a little light comes on and sparkly type thing. And the cats like to play with that too. But sometimes simpler may be better. 
Yeah, I've said that before on the show, I think, but I bought my cat one of those, you know, fi- fi- uh, fabric tunnels, and it's got, you know, it's about, I would say, about six feet long, got a couple of holes out of the top, but he loves to run down that and, you know, pop out, and it's funny, I leave it in the hallway, and sometimes, unsuspectingly, I'm walking down the hallway not knowing he's in there, and he'll jump out there and, and uh, attack my feet, so he's, uh, but he loves that thing, he, he's in that thing all the time, and that was only, I think I got it at Ikea in Memphis, and it was less than $10. So there are some simpler things uh, to keep your cats uh, and other pets uh, entertained as well. We have got a caller on the line. So why don't we say good morning to Jerry, who's called in from Memphis. Uh, I'm sorry, from Madison. Good morning, Jerry. You're on the air with us. Oh, uh, yeah. Thank you all. Good morning. I have a question for Dr. Major. Yesterday afternoon, I, I live out in the wooded area of Rankin County. i came across a fairly large two two and a half inch rhino beetle okay and i was and i was wondering what you might know about them and my real question is are they scarce or rare because i you know i'm outside all the time it's the first one i've ever seen and i took a picture of it and used my pocket knife for scale and i think i'll try to send it to you guys that'd be great uh they get pretty large and these pretty rotund i guess right i mean he's got a lot of mass uh oh, yeah. they are fairly they're probably more common than we realize this time of year it seems like we see more uh i've seen some very big ones uh in the past but they aren't they aren't real common i guess in answer to your question but uh they they're they're amazing creatures okay yeah I mean, and I, I did a little research, and it seems like they feed on fruit and tree sap and stuff, but they look so honest, you know. Right. You know, most people right. probably hurt themselves trying to get away from them. And, <laughs> and, and realize that they can fly as well. So that's that's a, that's a little bit scary when you see this big uh, uh, beetle coming, coming at your face or whatever. They don't harm anybody, though, and they're very uh, docile. All right. Well, thank you. So, uh, Jerry, if you can uh, get that picture to us, just uh, email it to animals at mpbonline.org, and we'll share it uh, with the folks here on the show and also uh, possibly post it online as well. So uh, thanks for your call this morning. It's time for our first break of the hour. When we return, we'll welcome our guest this morning. It's Mark Woodry, a senior research associate at the Mississippi State University Coastal Research and Extension Center, where he focuses on the scientific understanding and conservation of coastal ecosystems. Today, he'll talk with us about some of the migrating birds in Mississippi. Also, as you know, Dr. Major's here, ready for your pet questions. So call in with questions and comments. The phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more, so stay tuned. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. If you want to join our conversation this morning with a question or comment, call us at one mpb ring it's one 672 7464 You can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. We have our guest on the phone now. It's Mark Woodry. Uh, good morning, Mark. Thanks for being on the show with us. If you would, tell us a little bit about your background. 
yeah, thank you, Kevin. Um, yeah, um, I'm originally from the Midwest and moved to Mississippi to uh, get my Ph.D. at the University of Southern Mississippi. Um, grew up interested in birds since the age of 12. Uh, worked at the Natural Science Museum for 10 years as the ornithologist there, um, and then moved over to Mississippi State, where I've continued to follow up on a lot of the work that I did uh, when I was associated with the museum. You know, sometimes when folks have a lifelong interest, it's hard to try to remember what maybe might have triggered it, but do you know what what was it about birds back in the day that, that caught your interest? Yeah, um, it goes back to my going out with my grandfather uh, on weekends and on weekdays when I wasn't in school uh, running his beagles. And he had an interest in birds, and we would see a lot of brightly colored songbirds. He didn't know, uh, you know, their common names or their technical names, but he made up his own names for them. And so as I got interested, I started to realize that, yeah, they're actually were standard names for them and for them and things like that. So, yeah, started um, actually helping him learn uh, the common names for the birds, and yeah, that's where it started. You know, on the show, we always encourage uh, families to go out and enjoy nature and, yeah. and look at see what the, the results might be. So if you go out, uh, you might be inspiring a, a younger member of your family uh, to a, a possible career. So that's a, a great story, Mark. Thanks for sharing that with us. Uh, let's talk about the Gulf of Mexico Avian Monitoring Network. You helped create that. What's that all about? Yeah, so that is a group of folks that got together, both professionals as well as um, amateur ornithologists, and we realized that after the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, that we didn't have a lot of good baseline data in terms of what the population levels were for different bird species. And so as a result of uh, that oil spill and the settlement, uh, we worked with a variety of colleagues from Texas all the way around through Florida to develop sort of a standard monitoring program and a group of people that you know, if there's interest in monitoring a particular group of birds uh, these days, one of my interests are uh, secretive marsh birds, uh, you know, sort of a go-to group of people that wildlife professionals and funding agencies can go to, to to help us collect data to just understand how populations are doing in the environment so that the next time something happens, a hurricane, whatever it might be, uh, you know, we, we're able to better understand what the impacts on birds are. Uh, so how does the, the, the group monitor uh, birds? What, you know, do you go out in the field and, and that way, or, or how do you make sure you've got a somewhat accurate count of the bird population? Well, there's lots of different ways to do it. The sort of tried and true ways are just what you described, going out in the field um, and using standard methods where, uh, you know, you walk, you cover a particular area, and you just record all the birds that you see and that you hear, uh, but there are also some really interesting technological uh, advances that have happened in the last 15 to 20 years. Um, if you watch the evening news or the morning news um, and you're watching the weather segment, they'll often talk about when they show the radar screening, you know, it'll be clear and sunny outside, but the weathermen will talk about ground clutter. And often what that is are actually migratory birds that are migrating and they're, they basically just like raindrops. They fly through the radar beam, and so they reflect a signal back. And so that's a technology that was actually developed 
here along the Gulf of Mexico, a fellow Dr. Sid Gotro over at the Louisiana State University back actually in the 70s started doing that. And now with everything being computerized, uh, a lot of my colleagues have built on that. So uh, we know from those radar studies that the volume of migrants or the number of birds, the total number of birds migrating across the Gulf of Mexico have been reduced by about 50% uh, since the early 1970s. You know, this has been an extraordinary year in terms of tropical storms and hurricanes. Uh, talk about the impact that that has on the research that you do. Yeah, so there's uh, you know, several different groups of birds that, that migrate through the Gulf Coast or live here on the Gulf Coast. And so I'll, I'll give you two examples that I'm fairly familiar with. Um, again, using radar ornithology, as it's called, um, Several colleagues back around the, when Katrina came through, that was right in the heart or right at the beginning of songbird migration in the fall. And so there was lots of concern about how that would impact birds. And it turns out, though, that most of these land bird migrants are actually able to somehow sense there's a hurricane. And so birds actually migrated farther to the west and sort of around the storm. Uh, so, you know, they're. If you stop and think about it, they're obviously adapted for these kind of conditions. You know, hurricanes are a common part of, you know, life here on the Gulf Coast in the fall. And so they've evolved, you know, over the eons to, you know, to be adapted to those, uh, you know, those kind of, um, you know, natural disturbances. And then we uh, do a lot of work on these secretive marsh birds. So they are restricted to these tidal marshes here on the coast. And, um we're just now beginning to try to understand the impacts of, of these storms. But I will tell you that during uh, after Hurricane Cristobal, there were thousands, if not probably tens of thousands, of clapper rails that got pushed up out of the marsh, and they were running around on the beaches um, in Harrison and Hancock County. They were running out into Highway 90. Uh, unfortunately, some birds were being hit on Highway 90 but there were literally tens of thousands of clapper rails just running all over the beach. And, uh, you know, we followed them for several weeks, and it seemed to take them quite a while to kind of get their wits about them and sort of get back to marshes and places like that. We'll visit with Mark Woodry throughout the hour. If you have a question or a comment and you want to join our conversation, it's one eight seven seven mpb ring Our phone number is one 672 You can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. So if you have a comment or a question for Mark, a, a pet question or a brush with wildlife that you'd like to report to us, uh, give us a call. We've got some open phone lines. So, Mark, is fall migration currently underway? Actually, it we're pretty much near the end of it for the most part. Um, typically in Mississippi, depending upon the group of birds you're talking about, um, it can start as early as early June, or sorry, early July. Uh, that's when a lot of shorebirds that breed way up in the Arctic start to move south. Um, so in our summer, you know, in the dead of our summer, Actually, there are shorebirds migrating through, you know, and tens of thousands of individuals are migrating through. But most people, when they think of migration and bird migration in particular, they think of all the songbirds that we have. So things like warblers and vireos, canagers, uh, grosbeaks, things like that. 
all these songbirds, they tend to really start migrating in late August, and then the bulk of migration happens in September uh, and October. And by now, most of those birds uh, that we call neotropical migrants, so they leave uh, you know, the temperate zone, the United States, they migrate across the Gulf of Mexico, and then they winter in the tropics. Most of those birds are pretty much through now, although there are some stragglers. And now what we're seeing are just an influx of winter birds that move down from the north um, and will spend the winter here along the Gulf Coast and across Mississippi. So, yeah, so the ones that are passing through have passed through, but we've got some coming in that like to spend the the winter here for, I guess, the the milder climate. Exactly. What about uh, the open water of the Gulf of Mexico? To me, it's fascinating that these birds can migrate over that that huge body of water. How do they do it? Yeah, so... Uh, like most people, you know, if you're gonna, if you're a marathon runner, uh, you know, you they typically will carbo load, uh, you know, the night before a race. And what these migrants do is they just lay down a bunch of body fat. So, you know, fat is the fuel that um, you know they use to to make these long distance migrations. And so, um, you know, some of these bird species, things like hummingbirds can double their body weight uh, before they cross the Gulf of Mexico. Um, so they just lay down a bunch of fat, and then they make, it's about somewhere 18 to 24 hours, depending on the weather, of nonstop flight across the Gulf of Mexico. So a pretty amazing feat when you think that, you know, marathon runners, you know, the elite runners run for two, two and a half hours. These birds are migrating, you know, and flying nonstop for 18 to 24 hours. So pretty amazing. Well, also, when you consider even a marathoner, if you get tired, you can stop. But, you know, if you're flying over the Gulf of Mexico, it's pretty much go, go, go. There's no way to stop and, and take a break. That's for sure. Exactly. Um, what? Let's uh, talk, if you would, about the Mississippi Flyway, what that is and, and how important it is. Yeah. So this concept of flyways is, is an idea that developed from the early studies, a lot of the early migration studies were done using waterfowl, and one of the main reasons for that is they could put bands on birds, and because people hunt waterfowl, they were able to actually recover these bands and try to understand movements of migratory birds. And so the Mississippi Flyway is one of uh, four flyways, uh, and, um, you know, in general, birds do tend to follow these flyways, although as we've done more studies, we realize that, you know, some birds will migrate, you know, from the Midwest and they'll actually fly to the Atlantic coast and go south. So not all birds just stay in these nice, neat little routes, uh, but it helps us understand kind of generally how birds move, uh, you know, from their breeding grounds to their wintering grounds. So you mentioned uh, that the, the birds that are passing through have passed through, but there are some birds that are heading here uh, to overwinter. Uh, what are some of the birds that have uh, migrated down here to spend their winter uh, in the south? Yeah, so uh, a lot of sparrows come down that breed up in the Midwest and up into Canada. They come down and will winter here along the coast. Uh, you know, a lot of them come down and eat a lot of seeds that are available. If you drive around and look at farm fields and things like that, fields that have been left fallow, you'll see most of the plants out there, the grasses have, you know, seed stalks and things like that. So things like white-throated sparrows, um, 
You know, one bird in particular that's of interest is a bird called a Henslow sparrow. Uh, that's a species that back in the, as early as 2000, we really didn't know much about where they wintered. Uh, a lot of people assumed they went to the tropics. But it turns out, based on some work out of our lab, as well as several colleagues across the Gulf Coast, that most of them actually winter almost immediately right along the Gulf Coast in these pine savanna habitats, um, which are a rare and uh, habitat but that require prescribed fire. So that's a bird that a lot of people, a lot of bird watchers, uh, really want to get out and see. So we do several field trips here on the coast to, to get folks out and walk through these grasslands to see those birds. This is Creature Comforts, and it's time for another break. When we return, we'll continue our discussion with our guest, Mark Woodry, from the MSU Coastal Research and Extension Center in Biloxi. Dr. Major's still on hand, ready for any pet questions you have. And Libby's joining us from her trip out west. She's ready to talk about your recent brushes with nature. We've got some open phone lines. Call us if you want to join the conversation. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464. You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Stay tuned. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. And our guest for the hour, Mark Woodry from the MSU Coastal Research and Extension Center in Biloxi. If you missed any of today's show, you can subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcast app, or you can download the MPB public media app for your smartphone. And if you want to join the conversation, Call us at one eight seven seven mpb ring Our phone number is one 672 You can email animals at mpbonline.org. We do have a caller on the line, so we say good morning to JW in Tupelo. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to comment on the uh, migration across the Gulf. Back in the 70s and 80s, I worked out in the oil field out there. And uh, started out on tugboats, but then moved over to the drilling rigs. And certain times of the year, we would have a lot of birds, especially at night, uh, circling the rig. And I've actually seen hummingbirds come up to the draw works on, that the driller was, uh, you know, drilling with that had a bunch of colored lights on it and actually try to... I guess, get water. I, I, that's what I assumed they were looking for was fresh water or a place to land and rest. Uh, I was actually standing on the corner one night and kind of in the shadows looking out across the water, and uh, I think it was a little screech owl or something grabbed me in the top of my head. I thought he probably thought I was just a post standing there or whatever, <laughs> but it kind of, <laughs> I'd already looked down the rig leg and, and was thinking about sea monsters climbing up. So when he grabbed me in the head with his talons, of course I screamed like a little girl, you know, <laughs> was flailing my arms. I wish I had a video of it. I think it would probably go viral, but. I had quite an experience with um, what they're talking about, the birds migrating. and, and Anyway, I just wanted to comment on that. That kind of brought back some, some good memories. 
Thanks. Thank you. Uh, thanks for the story, JW. Good uh, story there. Uh, so, Mark, I guess I hadn't thought about that, but that does possibly give some migrating birds a, a chance to to stop if they need to, or those uh, the oil rigs. Yeah, this, um, they can be sort of a double-edged sword. Um, as JW pointed out, sometimes the birds will stop there just to uh, rest. Uh, but one of the things we know about things like oil rigs or a lot of cell phone towers, taller towers, uh, depending upon the lighting that's used, um, and if the weather's inclement and the fog is, the fog is low, the birds can actually get disoriented, and when they see those lights, they're attracted to those lights. Um, so sometimes you'll get birds that will just go out and they'll circle uh, those rigs. Um, you know, so it can sometimes be detrimental. But one of the one of the really great things is there's been a lot of work between the federal government and private industry, both the oil industry as well as the cellular communications industry, to figure out. Uh, different patterns of lighting so that the birds aren't attracted to those areas. So they still use them, you know, to rest, uh, but they're not attracted to them during inclement weather where they're just going to circle and circle until basically they run out of energy um, and they either drop into the water or land on the rig and then, you know, typically don't survive. So it's a real positive story, um, you know, over the last 20 years that everybody's worked together to, you know, to minimize those impacts. A couple of emails here. This one says, I live in Ocean Springs on the coast. Had a lot of fun activity uh, to watch on my hummingbird feeders during the summer. Haven't had any in a while, so I took them down. Should I have, and what is the best time to put them back up in the spring? Well, ruby-throated hummingbirds, which is our resident hummingbird here in the eastern United States, they breed in Ocean Springs, well, breed throughout the eastern U.S. Um, they all migrate to the tropics. Uh, for the winter. So all of them, there's still, I think, a few I've seen hanging around or heard about hanging around. But if you, uh, what I recommend and a lot of folks recommend is leave one or two of your feeders up because an interesting phenomena is that a lot of western hummingbirds, so hummingbird species, in particular the rufous hummingbird, which is very common, instead of migrate, some of them migrate south, but some of them actually migrate east and will spend the winter here along the Gulf Coast. So I suggest to everybody that if you've got hummingbird feeders, you know, you don't need to leave a bunch of them up because most of the sugar water is going to, you know, go bad because you're not having a lot of birds eating it. But I would leave one up, um, you know, and if you find a, a hummingbird coming to your feeder in the winter, it's probably some western species, which there's a lot of interest. And I would suggest, you know, you could let me know at the Coastal Research and Extension Center, uh, Nick Winstead is at the Natural Science Museum. He's the ornithologist there. Or just find your local Audubon chapter online and just let someone know. There's a lot of, of growing interest in these western hummingbirds. There's about eight or nine species that actually will migrate uh, to this part of the, the world for to winter. All right. Uh, we've got a caller on the line. Our friend Bill in Greenwood has called in. Good morning, Bill. You're on the air with us. Oh, how you doing, Mr. Farrell? Uh, I'd like to ask a gentleman about birds, uh, uh, two questions. Uh, I was wondering, uh, I know about the white sort of sparrow, but I was wondering if there was any other birds that come all the way down from Canada down here. And about the, uh, I know about the purple um, martin, but I was wondering if there's any uh, other birds that, that go down to South America and come up here in the summertime and 
Do they go any of them go down all the way down to the tip to where Del Fuego? Uh, a lot of our songbirds don't go that far south. Uh, ones that breed here, they usually get down to about uh, the middle of South America. But there are some shorter bird species that will go all the way down to Tierra del Fuego that travel through here, uh, and also some terns that will go um, all the way down there. In terms of species that winter here in coastal Mississippi, there's a variety of things. There's all kinds of wren species that come down, marsh wrens, house, uh, winter wrens, uh, a variety of sparrows. There's another sparrow called a white-crowned sparrow, uh, swamp sparrows. Uh, a lot of seed-eating birds, so birds with big, thick, you know, sort of heavy beaks. Um, you know, even things like blue jays, actually, that breed up north and breed here. We get a big influx of blue jays uh, in the winter. Uh, red-winged blackbirds is another one that, you know, fairly common here. But in the winter, there are literally flocks of, you know, thousands of red-winged blackbirds and other blackbirds um, hanging out here on the Gulf Coast. Mm. Oh, I was wondering also about balkan birds. I knew they were in Cuba. How did balkan birds get to Cuba? Do you know that? Uh, probably um, had to do with the movement of the land masses. Um, and I know there's, uh, yeah, there's, I think, gosh, I'm not sure. I, I don't know. But there's, I know there's several species of mockingbirds found around the world. Um, and so it probably just has to do with, you know, how they've evolved over time and, you know, movement of the land masses and some birds stayed, you know, down there and other birds moved, you know, up here to, to North America. Um, so, yeah, mockingbirds are definitely one of my favorites. They, um, yeah, they're just really interesting birds. Yeah. All right, Bill. All right. Good to hear from you. Thanks for calling in this morning. Uh, here's another email that says, I've noticed a lot of bald eagles here on the coast, but now there's a golden eagle that lives in Van Cleve near my house and apparently has lived there for 15 years. Adam is wondering if anybody uh, is aware of this and has documented the bird. Um, I am not aware of a golden eagle in the Van Cleve area. I actually live in Ocean Springs. So if Adam could, I guess, email the show, uh, and provide more details. Uh, we'd be very interested in, you know, trying to figure out. There are a lot of bird watchers here along the coast, and ball, uh, golden eagles are pretty rare this far south. Um, I know there's some that winter up in the northern part of Alabama and those places. So yeah, if he could provide more information, that would be uh, of interest. Um, with regards to bald eagles, I'll, I'll point out that. That's a real success story. Uh, when I worked at the Natural Science Museum, one of my responsibilities was to work with the federal government to track bald eagle nests across the state of Mississippi. And in the late 1980s, we only had one known eagle nest in the state. It was along the Chuticabuff River in Biloxi. And when I left the museum in 2002, we were up to about 40 nests across the state. And the last I heard is we're now up to over 100 nests across the state of Mississippi. So bald eagles have definitely made a, a strong comeback. And I think a lot of that is they've just gotten more used to nesting around humans, uh, you know, and houses and things like that. So, uh, yeah, bald eagles have made a strong recovery. But if Adam's willing to share any information about this golden eagle, you know, there's a, there's a lot of people that would be interested in, in checking that out. 
All right, Adam, if you're still listening, just uh, email the show again with some contact information, and we will pass it on uh, to Mark. And as a USM graduate, I'm I'm uh, obligated to make my joke at that there are a lot of golden eagles there in the Hattiesburg area. Okay. <laughs> oh, boy, I tell you. Uh, let's uh, quickly move on to uh, Terry, who's called in from Tupelo. Terry, you're on the air with us. Go ahead, please. Hey, uh, I was fishing Sunday and saw a crane, and I said, well, I'm going to call in. Uh, how many species of cranes call Mississippi home, and do they migrate? Yeah, so basically it's one species. It's called the sandhill crane. But what you probably have heard about is there's a, a subspecies of sandhill crane called the Mississippi sandhill crane. And there are six populations of subspecies found sort of across the southeastern U.S. and Cuba. Um, those, All of those subspecies found here are all non-migratory. So they do not migrate, but what we do get is the northern sandhill crane. Those species that breed you know, up into Canada and places like that, they will actually migrate south um, and winter here um, in places where we see our Mississippi sandhill cranes you know, year-round. The northern sandhill cranes will come down um, you know, and, and, yeah, winter in these same places. So. It's a little tricky in that there's these different groups or what we call subspecies. Uh, some are migratory, some are non-migratory. So it makes for an interesting, interesting day when you're out when you're out birding. All right, Terry. Thanks for your call. Good to hear from you this morning. Uh, let's uh, stay on the line. Another Terry has called in from Terry. Good morning. You're on the air with us. Yes, sir. This is Terry. Go ahead. Terry from Columbia. I thought maybe I had the wrong. You that, had the wrong person. But My bad. Anyway, Go ahead. Uh, I, I, I have a cardinal that comes to my feeders. He's been coming now, or she, I don't know, really know which one it is, because it's more white than red. And I sent a picture in, and they said it wasn't an albano because it had a, a little too much color. But it's just a beautiful sight, man, and, and I just get so... Uh, excited when it comes to my feeder, man. My wife and I, like I said, we've been watching it now for like uh, four years. And I was wondering how long do they, I mean, you know, would could I expect for this bird to constantly come around? Yeah, most songbirds, uh, their lifespan is five years, maybe. Uh, it just depends. Um you know, some individuals of a given species, um, there's a bird called a, a unfortunately, I can't remember the, the name of the bird. The public has sort of given the bird a name, but, um, yeah, it's lived for over, like, I think 40 years, something like that. Uh, but most songbirds, it's about five years, but, you know, it can live up to eight, ten years, something like that. So that's interesting. Yeah, that, you know, out albinos are not very common, you know, in nature. Um, and it's, it's pretty rare that you get a true albino where the bird's completely white and has no pigments in its skin. Uh, but that's interesting. All right, Terry, thanks for your call. This is Creature Comforts, and it's time for the last break of our hour. And when we get back, we'll wrap things up with our guest, Mark Woodry. Also, Dr. Major Libby Hartfield still on hand uh, for pet questions and 
Brushes with Wildlife. Still time to join our conversation as well. Give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can email animals at mpbonline.org. Back to wrap up the program after this. Hey, this is Malcolm White. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Every week we talk with visual artists, musicians, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcast app. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. Our guest for the hour, Mark Woodry from the MSU Coastal Research and Extension Center in Biloxi. Uh, we've got some callers on the line, so let's start again on the phones with our buddy Timothy in Louisiana. Good morning, Timothy. You're on the air with us. Good morning, y'all. I'm just curious about the status of the least turn on Mississippi, you know, with these storms and everything and the oil spills and everything up that they're having to deal with. So I'll hang uh, up and listen. Sure. Um, the turns seem to be doing okay on the uh, Gulf Coast. Um, yeah, um, just trying to, yeah. So, I mean, they seem to be doing fairly well. Um, there were some, that appeared to be some impacts from uh, the oil spill as uh, well as some of the hurricanes, although fortunately by the time most hurricanes come through the Gulf Coast, the least turns have done nesting. Uh, so what can cause some problems for least turns are uh, these late afternoon thunderstorms where we get really heavy rains in a short period of time, sometimes those can, uh, instead of most of the water seeping down into the sand, can actually run across the sand and, uh, you know, leaf turns build small little scrapes in the sand, so they don't really build much of a nest, and so sometimes the eggs can, can roll down and get washed into the, into the surf. But, um, you know, at least in the last 10 years, they seem to be generally holding their own. Um, there has been a decline from populations that we're aware of back in the 70s. Uh, but right now they seem to be holding their own, at least the ones here on the coast. Let's move on next. We've got uh, Ben, who has called in from Greenville. Good morning, Ben. You're on the air with us. Thank you. Good morning, fellas. Uh, uh, Mark, I just wanted to ask you, a uh, long-time waterfowl uh, hunter and habitat developer, we have been seeing uh, whistling tree ducks from South Texas. Uh, up into Arkansas, South Illinois, uh, Alabama, uh, during the summertime, not during the season. But they have never been here before. I was hoping you could share with us what's going on with that. Yeah, they definitely are expanding, uh, you know, north as well as east. Um, Based on banding records and some genetics work, most of those birds are originating in Mexico. Um, You know, the sort of typical go-to answer uh, right now is it's probably in one way or another related to increases that we're seeing in in temperatures, uh, probably less freezing, uh, you know, so they're able to find food, uh, you know, things aren't icing over as much. And that's a pretty common trend that we're seeing among a lot of species of birds. There's one called the limpkin uh, that 
lives in marshes. And uh, when I was growing up in high school, uh, you know, in the 70s, if you wanted to see those, there were a couple places in Florida where you went to see them. Um, in the last five years, there's some nesting records in North Alabama. There's five or six nesting records in Louisiana. So clearly a lot of these birds that are have southern, more southern roots are slowly moving north. Um, and it just seems that, you know, the changes that we're seeing in temperatures uh, seems to be something that's, you know, allowing them to have access to food and things where they, you know, and food items that normally might die back when, it, when we get a lot of hard freezes. You know, we're just not seeing those kinds of conditions, you know, in the, you know, here along the coast um, so nearly as frequently. So I think that's what's allowing them to, to move north. Uh, well, if we're a little further north, well, I've been involved in a habitat development project in Arkansas, west Arkansas, for uh, about a decade. Is there anything that we could do to help them uh, uh, in our in our uh, project? I don't think so. I think you know, just providing you know the typical sort of moist soil management. I'm assuming that's probably what you guys do. You know, the typical sort of moist soil management. Um, I work a lot with uh, colleagues with Fish and Wildlife Service and Ducks Unlimited uh, with not specifically on waterfowl, but talk to them a lot. And I haven't really heard them talk about anything specific you can do, you know, in terms of providing, you know, particular habitat or something like that. Um, I think just probably doing what you're doing, you know, if it's, if it's there, the bird, you know, if you build it, the birds, you know, they will come. The birds will find it, as you know. Right. That's right. Okay. Well, thank you, sir. All right. Thank you for your efforts. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ben, for the call. Let's uh, wrap things up with one final call, and it's William in Starkville. Got about two minutes left, William. Yeah, uh, okay. Can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask Mark if he'd run across the absolutely remarkable, phenomenal story of the most amazing migration uh, I've ever heard of. It's one of the most amazing scientific uh, facts that I've encountered in, in a lifetime. The far-tailed guard, godwit, uh, this is reported by the uh, Cornell uh, Bird Lab, Ornithology Lab. The far-tailed godwit bulks up to about a, from 12, 13 ounces to about a pound and flies nonstop from Alaska to northern uh, New Zealand, 7,500 miles nonstop. And uh, they know it's nonstop because they they put a, uh, a satellite tracker on on a couple of birds and have uh, verified that they that they uh, make it with, a, with with one flight eight days nonstop. And uh, the only thing that uh, makes hummingbirds comparable is the fact that they're a hundred times smaller and uh, only flying a, a quarter of the distance or a fifth or a quarter of the distance. I just wondered if that was, uh, if you had uh, encountered that. Yeah, um, that's one of the uh, stories that when people talk about bird migration and these sort of, you know, uh, physical feats that they're able to make, yeah, bar-tailed godwood is one uh, that people uh, talk about quite a bit. There's also been, it's not really a, a migratory movement per se, but uh, we just had a new fellow come into our lab who studies sort of pelagic seabirds, so these birds that live out basically on the ocean. And, you know, a lot of species of albatrosses and other things, they put satellite transmitters on those, and those birds will literally spend 
you know, 90 to 95 percent of the year on the wing. So they, they rarely are on land. And they actually can save energy by flying. They don't flap. They're just, their wings and stuff are designed in such a way that the aerodynamics, they save energy by actually sort of soaring around and gliding around the globe. Um, so, yeah, birds can do amazing things. Um, yeah, these long-distance flights are, are pretty incredible. All right, William, good to hear from you. Thanks for your call. And that is going to wrap us up. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. Funding is provided in part by listeners like you. To hear today's show or previous show, visit mpbonline.org slash creaturecomforts. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener today was Liz Gill. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest, Mark Woodry, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to stay tuned because up next, it's AutoCorrect with the lady auto mechanic, Allison Walker. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts. It's heard only on MPB Think Radio.